The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. As you come back in, please open to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. It is page 573 in the Red Bible, page 680 in the Large Print Blue Bible, and page 734 in the Children's Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. We love to give away Bibles. Uh, we have plenty of extras. Um, the only deal is if you take it, you got to read it. That's the only rule. So, uh, but we love to give away Bibles. Today we're going to cover uh, this whole passage kind of in parts as we go through it. But I want to start by reading the conclusion of this passage, the last two verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And I don't know if you've ever seen those movies where they start with the end, you know, like they're all at a funeral or at a happy parade or something, and then they go back to the beginning of the story and come to that conclusion. And so I want to read the conclusion of this passage. It's a passage that many of you are probably familiar with. Uh, if you've been around the church for a while, it's a, it's a pretty popular Christmas uh, passage. And then we will fill in the backstory uh, throughout the message today. So let's read together. Uh, you can... Uh, Follow along in your Bibles. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9, and I will be reading verses 6 through 7. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. We sing, come Lord Jesus. And you have come and we are so thankful that we get to praise the fact that you have come every year at Christmas time to celebrate that you did not remain at a distance, but that you, O oh God, came near in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray this day that you would come near in our souls, that you would work through your Holy Spirit to change us, to help us to hope in the good news of Christmas, that it would change our life, change our vision, And that it would lead us to enjoy you and worship you all the more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love about Christmas is the Christmas music. And I don't just like the Christmas Christmas hymns. I love those. I also like the secular Christmas music. One of the songs that I love that I can't help but sing along to is that song, We need a little Christmas right this very minute. You know the song, right? Anybody know where it came from or who first sang it? Well, it it came in the 1950s from a musical called Maine. And the one who originally sang it, it was the lead of of that musical, which was Auntie Maine, who was played by Angela Lansbury, okay? Uh, If you're under 35, you don't know who that is, but for the rest of you, she's Murder, She Wrote, okay? That's who sang it, all right? And so Angela Lansbury sang this. Now, what this play was about, what this musical was about, is it was set in New York City uh, during the Great Depression and during World War II. And and, and Auntie Mae lives this lavish lifestyle. She has plenty of money, and she's she's living up life with her friends and having fun. But then life happens. 
Her brother passes away, and so her nephew moves in with her, which kind of disrupts her life. But then she also loses her fortune. There's actually one scene in this after the Wall Street crash of 1929 where Auntie Mame comes home. And her nephew is there, and her household servants are there, and all of them are kind of sad and kind of gloomy. And then she breaks out into song, right? And she sings, I know what we need. We need a little Christmas right this very minute. And that's how the song was born. And the song has grown in popularity. It was remade uh, three times between 2005, 2010, and it hit the top 25 every time. But if you look in this song, if you look in the lyrics of the song, if you even just look at the title of the song, you can see that there is this longing for Christmas, right? We need a little Christmas right now. Like we need a solution. We need help. And it's not just longing for Christmas. It's longing for redemption. It's longing for the restoration that we're hoping that Christmas can bring. You see, in the song, it says, put up the tree before my spirit falls again. For I've grown a little leaner, grown a little colder, grown a little sadder, grown a little older. And I need a little angel sitting on my shoulder I need a little Christmas now. Now, my guess is uh, none of you here are suffering uh, immediate effects of the Wall Street crash of 1929, Uh, but I'm guessing that you are suffering other tragedies, other hardships in your life. Maybe you're here today suffering the sadness of a difficult marriage. Maybe you're here today suffering loneliness, feeling like nobody loves you. Maybe you're here today suffering Uh, the loss of a job and looking for a new one. Maybe you're here today suffering chronic illness and wondering if it will ever get better. Maybe you're here today suffering the loss of a loved one. See, when we live in this world, we live in a world that is filled with suffering. And so our hearts sing, we need a little Christmas now. Or as the song says, we need a little music, need a little laughter, need a little singing ringing through the rafter, and we need a snappy Oh, I messed it up. Anyways, we need a little snappy, happy ever after. We need a little Christmas now. My singing's not that bad, is it? Where's Chad? All right. Or Jonathan. The God, has get, God has given many gifts to his body, right? We don't all have the same, so. Here's the thing, friends. If you're here today and you are suffering with the gloom and the anguish of living in a fallen world and in a fallen family and in a fallen self, this is an awesome passage. This is a fantastic passage because it points us forward to Christmas. It points us to the hope of the restoration of all of your life and all of my life and all of humanity. And so I want to do, I want to just simply walk through this passage together and show the progression of how God takes gloom and turns it into utter Joy. So first, we see the rebellion and the gloom of God's people. Now, to fully understand the message that's being proclaimed here in Isaiah chapter 9, I need to give you a little bit of the backstory. If you remember, the people of God grew in great numbers when they were in Egypt. And then God delivered them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And when they were in the promised land, God was their king, and he was a good king. He was a great king, a wonderful king. And he had human authority set up called Judges. But the people cried out and they said, no, we want a human king. We want a king like all the other nations have. And God says, no, no, you'll be miserable. You'll be, you'll be in anguish. You'll be in gloom. And they said, we don't care. We want a human king. And so God says, a human king is what you want. A human king is what I'll give you. 
And so God gives them human kings, and, in, and it does exactly what he predicted, that it brings devastation and gloom and anguish. And so first there is King Solomon, who uh, takes his throne in 1020 BC. And then there is King David, his successor, and then King Solomon. And King Solomon has a time of great wisdom and great godliness, but then he becomes extremely wicked, and his wickedness divides the kingdom into two. I have a map here that actually shows a little bit of how the kingdom was divided. And so the northern kingdom was called Israel. And this is a bit confusing because before the kingdom divided in 922, this whole thing was called Israel, okay? But once the kingdom is divided in 922, the northern kingdom is called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah. You can see here is Jerusalem. Uh, This is where Isaiah is prophesying from and he's prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. Also up here, you see Galilee. If you just keep that in mind, here's the Sea of Galilee because we're going to be talking about it later, okay? But what Isaiah is doing is Isaiah is prophesying to the northern kingdom about the destruction that is going to come from the north, from the Assyrians. And he's telling them that the destruction is coming, not because the Assyrians are bigger or badder than the Israelites, although that's certainly true, but they're going to bring the judgment of God because they have continuously rebelled against God for hundreds of years. You see, ever since the kingdom split, The kings of the north continually led the people of God in rebelling against God and worshiping false gods, like the Baal worship and things of that sort. And so God, for hundreds of years, says, return to me, return to my word, repent and trust in the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. But they refused to do it. And after all of the warnings, finally God brings judgment of his refining grace to the northern Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Isaiah is writing into this, kind of in the midst of all of this happening. And he is telling them, yes, this is the judgment of God, but I also bring you good news. That as the Assyrians come in, and what's their custom? Conquer you and wipe you out. And as they devastate your buildings and things of that sort, they're going to take you and they're going to disperse you throughout their empire, which happened. But But he says, but here's the good news, is that God will preserve a remnant. God will preserve a remnant from the uttermost ends of the earth, from the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian, then the Persian, and God is going to bring you back into the promised land, okay? Now, the reason why I say that is because this is written not only to the people currently going through the destruction, but it's also written to the remnant of people that are going to be coming back into the northern kingdom, back into Israel. And of course, it's written for you and me today. And so as we read this passage, I want you to keep that in mind, these, this remnant coming back. And so Isaiah 8, verse 19 and 20, he says this to that remnant coming back. And when they, the, the people who took up residence uh, in that northern kingdom, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and the, to, to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And so what Isaiah is warning the people of here is not to make the mistake of their ancestors. Their ancestors who sought wisdom about life and, and what was going to happen by pursuing ungodly means. Deuteronomy 18, God warns his people against this. He says, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. See, people still do this today. We want to know 
how should we live life? What direction should we go? What, 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 what's, what's up for us? And so, so people read their horoscopes or, or they'll go to palm readers or they'll have someone who's like a medium between the living and the dead, all to find out and gather this information. And what God is saying here, he's saying, listen, if you want to know how life should be lived, if you want to know what your future is, you don't need to go those places. Just turn to me. Turn to the Lord. As you return to the Lord's land, return to the Lord. And the way that you return to the Lord, and this is so important, is by returning to his scripture. It says that very clearly here, verse 20, to the teaching and the testimony. God is saying, if you want to know my will for your life, if you want to know how to live life, go to my word. And if you go to those other mediums, those other places, there will be no dawn, meaning there will be no light, because their message is nothing but darkness. So as Isaiah moves on, he is talking to those people who don't heed his warning, who, who seek out worldly wisdom and, and reject going to God's word and submitting to God's word. And look how Isaiah describes them in verse 21 and 22. He says, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards in disrespect. And they will look to the earth, look to the earth in hopes of finding solution, information, truth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah is making it crystal clear that when the exiles of Israel return to the land, they must also return to the Lord, return to his word. They must not seek out Wisdom on life apart from God's word, but under God's word. Because if they go other places, they will end up distressed and hungry and contemptuous and thrust into darkness with gloom and anguish. You know, previously to Jacobswell Church, I was in youth ministry for many years. And there was a high school boy who I cared for very much uh, who went off to college. And he decided to pursue other things in God. And he was very open about it, which I appreciate his honesty. But he decided to go a different direction than to pursue God. And he started pursuing some of the, the things that college has to offer. And so one Christmas he came back and I sat down and we were having a conversation. We had a lot of different things that we were talking about. And I appreciated his honesty. But I asked him, I said, I said we'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, can you tell me, who are the three most joyful people you know? And so he sat back and he started to think and he scratched his head and, and he went on to, to struggle, but then to list out three people that he knew who were the most joyful people he'd ever met. And so I asked him, I said, what do those three people have in common? He said, well, all three of those people love Jesus. They love Jesus with their whole heart. And, th and that's what brings them joy. You see, here's, here's what this teaches us. It's a principle um, that, that still applies today, that those who pursue God and hear and obey his word, have a great joy. But those who rebelliously pursue joy through other things are absolutely miserable. So let me give it to you shorthand. If you pursue joy, you will be miserable. But if you pursue God, you will be joyful. Do you get that? If you pursue joy, you'll be miserable. But if you pursue God, you will be joyful. This is what God is telling us, and we pursue him through his word. 
I don't know about you, but when, I, when I'm excited because I get a new gift or something from the hardware store or something in the mail and I just want to, you know, use it or play with it or whatever, like the instructions become very secondary to me, right? So I will construct whatever it is, a wheelbarrow or whatever, and I'll get to the end of it. I'll be like, look at all these extra parts. What are those for? And then I'll try to operate it and it'll be very frustrating, right? Or even frustrating in the process because I refuse to read the directions and see what goes first, Right? In the same way, God is saying, listen, if you try to do life apart from my word, apart from my instructions, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be frustrated. So he says, return to me. Return to my word. Return to the God of your salvation. You see, much of our misery is brought on by our own rebellion, by our own uh, willful disobedience to go to God in his word, to submit to God's word. And it brings us misery. And so we sing, I need a little Christmas right this very minute. Something to make me happy now. Now here's the good news as we read on in Isaiah. Is that God does not leave his people in their gloom and misery. But God by his grace brings to his people restoration and joy. We see this in verse 1. The restoration and joy of God's people. Verse 1 says, but there will be future tense. No gloom for her who was past tense in anguish. And so uh, Isaiah's talking about the people of God that went into exile that were disciplined by the Lord through the Assyrians. He says, in the former time, he brought into contempt or dishonor the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, there's a lot of geographical descriptions thrown out here, but they all refer to the same general area. If you could put up the map, Cassie, you'll see here on the map, um, here's Naphtali, here's Zebulun. Okay, if you remember earlier, this region was called Galilee. It says the land uh, uh, beyond the Jordan. Here's where the Jordan ends. It's the land up here. And the reason why Isaiah highlights this is because this was the first land to, be, to receive the judgment of God from the Assyrian army. And he says, listen, you who have received the judgment of God are going to be the first to see the glory of God. Now, how would this be? How would they see the glory of God? Well, verse 2 tells us. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What is this light? Is it, is it a full moon? Is it... Is it a sun? What, what is it? Well, we know it's not those things. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know John 1 tells us that Jesus is the light of the world and that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Isaiah is promising that the light will burst forth in the darkness, not in Jerusalem, but up in the northern regions of Israel. And so if you look at the next map, I love maps, evidently. You'll see here's Galilee, okay? And here's Nazareth where Jesus was born. Or, sorry, not where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem down here. But Jesus was from Nazareth, was raised in Nazareth. That's why many times he was called Jesus of Nazareth. And people would say, Did any, has anything good ever come from Nazareth? And then later we'll see up here, he starts his ministry up here in Capernaum on the, on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And so Jesus is up here in the north, of the northern part of the northern kingdom, not down here in Judea or in Jerusalem. And so when we turn to Matthew chapter 4, we read this coming to fruition, that the light breaks forth uh, up north in the northern kingdom. It says this, Now when he heard 
when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Remember, it was up north there. Sorry, I lost my place. (laughs) In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in the darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach for the first time, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he, has two, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for, there were, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so as Isaiah is giving this prophecy that you will be the first to see the judgment and destruction and discipline of the Lord, you will also be the first to see the light of God, the glory of God. That it would be in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, where Jesus would start his preaching ministry. That it would be in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, that Jesus would start gathering disciples. That it would be in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, that would be the epicenter of the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. And so Isaiah makes this great promise. You who are walking in darkness, a light will dawn, and it will flood out the darkness. Verse 3 continues in Isaiah with this promise. Isaiah says, you, talking to the Lord, you have multiplied the nation. Notice here, this is, this is, this is not plural, this is singular. It's not saying there's going to be a whole lot of nations but that the nation of God, that the people of God will be multiplied when that light breaks forth. And indeed it did. As many Jews turned to Christ, but then also many Gentiles, many non-Jews turned to Christ. And this, this, local global, this local religion in Israel spreads out over the entire world and becomes very global. God expands his people. He expands and multiplies his nation. Now the Lord promises not only to increase the people, but also to increase the people's joy. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah is looking for ways to express the, the, the amount, the, uh, the energy of joy that's going to be displayed when the kingdom comes with this new king. And so you can imagine for a, an agrarian society where farming was such a big part of their life, they spent their whole year focused on it, how joyful it would have been to bring in a good harvest and to throw a great celebration. He says, this is the joy you will experience. Or, 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 or a community that is in a very unstable culture and they always have people attacking them and they're always in fear for their life and they have someone coming to attack and their military goes out to defend them and they beat them and they bring home the spoils. You can imagine the, the celebration and the rejoicing that happens. And what Isaiah says is this is the joy that you will experience when the light breaks into the world. Verse 4, he continues, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, talking about Israel's oppressors of the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, there's a lot there, says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian is a reference back to the Old Testament, to to the book of Judges, in which God takes Gideon and leads his people in this miraculous victory over these people that are oppressing God's people. Verse 5, he says, for every boot 
of trampling warrior and battle tumult, that is fierceness or uproar, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You can imagine how wonderful this must have been for those who heard this. Those who were being exiled, those who were being spread throughout the world, those who had this promise of coming back and that God would grow his people. God is saying, listen, there will be a time of great peace where everything that is used for 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 war, will be burned or will be turned to something different. Earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah 2, he says they will beat their swords into plowshares because there will be no more need for swords. And he says, and their spears into pruning hooks because there will be no more need for spears. He says, nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They won't even know what war is. That's the peace that God promises to bring. And again, you can imagine their anticipation. You can imagine the hope that they have of this day that is to come as they are being spread throughout the world. A day when God would bring them back, restore their nation, grow their nation, restore their joy, and grow their joy. It was a, a promise of great anticipation. You know, Christmas, Christmas is a funny holiday because it is a holiday that, that has a lot of anticipation, uh, even a little bit of antagonization. Antag- ah, I made up a word antagonization added to it. Um, but, but it goes like this. You know, you, you hang up your stockings and, and your kid comes to you and they go, oh, that one has my name on it. Is that one for me? Yeah, that one's for you. And then they start to run towards it and you go, no, no, wait, 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 wait. You can't open it yet. What? I can't open it yet? Yeah, yeah, you have to wait. Do it later. Like this afternoon? Nope, you have to wait, oh, like 25 days. 25 days? Like, I got to wait 25 days to open the stocking you put it in front of me just to taunt me? Like, what is this, right? And then you have the Christmas tree, and you start, you know, slowly, every morning they wake up, a few more presents underneath there, and it has their name on it, and, oh, yes, can I open up presents? Nope. Got to wait. What are you doing to me, right? You got to wait till Christmas, and then Christmas comes, and you're like, all right, don't wake me up till 6 a.m., but they're up at 3 a.m., like, just sitting at the top steps, like, shaking, right? Because they're so excited. There's so much anticipation of the gifts that are to come. One person actually told me this past week that they forgot to tell their child to wake them up in the morning. And so the child went down, opened up all the presents, and then came and woke mom and dad up. That's how excited they were. I I mean, a kid on Christmas morning is like when you put a stake in front of a dog and you say, hold, hold, hold. And you're like, okay. And then it's, boom, and scarf, right? Christmas is a time of anticipation because the people of God were anticipating the Christ that would come. They were waiting for the king that would come, that would, that would conquer their enemies, that would bring them together, that would renew their joy. I mean, think of the stark contrast between the kingdom that these people were experiencing in the time of Isaiah and the kingdom that God promised in Isaiah. One is a kingdom of darkness and the other is a kingdom of light. Which one do you want to live in? One was a kingdom of desolation and the other a kingdom of multiplication. One a kingdom of distress and gloom and the other a kingdom of joy and rejoicing. One a kingdom of defeat, the other a kingdom of victory. One a kingdom of war and the other a kingdom of peace. And so you can imagine how much they must have anticipated and looked forward to that first Christmas when the light would break into the darkness and push out the light. I don't know if you have asked God for anything this Christmas But I would encourage you that you ask God to expand his kingdom 
in your life. That the kingdom of light would continue to roll back the darkness in your heart. That the kingdom of joy and rejoicing would push out the distress and gloom in your soul. That the kingdom of restoration would heal the destruction throughout your relationships. And that the kingdom of peace would settle your troubled soul. This is the kingdom that God has promised. The kingdom that God offers to us through Christmas. The gift of a king, the gift of a ruler, the gift of a kingdom, the gift of hope. And so we end where we began in verses 6 and 7 of the ruler and the hope of God's people. Now these, these Christmas verses are very popular. Maybe they become somewhat ordinary to you. So I want to walk through them slowly and kind of talk about each one. So it will take a little bit of time. Um, but each phrase, each word is pregnant with meaning. Um, pun completely intended. All right. So verse 6 says, for to us, to us the miserable ones, to us the rebellious ones, to us the gloomy ones, to us the darkened ones, to us the joyless ones, to us the anguished ones, to us the defeated ones, to us, to you and to me, to the people of God, to us, a child is born. Earlier in Isaiah 7, we are told that this child will be identified because this child will be born of a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This promised child is not any child. It is the only son of God, God's prized possession. And this son is not found, it is not kidnapped. As it says here in this verse, this son is given to us, to you, to me. It is given as the first Christmas gift to a broken world. And the government, Isaiah continues, shall be upon his shoulders. This is not an earthly government, but a spiritual government, a, a heavenly government that infiltrates every other government because this government reigns in the hearts of the believers, of those who trust in Christ and follow Christ and sit under this king. And so as they are transformed, they go in and transform every other part of the world as his kingdom reigns, as his government carries forth. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Counselor denotes an honorable rank. It's someone who sits in an advisory role to royalty as we think of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. This means that Jesus as the counselor is all wise, that he's all knowing, that he is virtuous and strategic and victorious on behalf of his people. Isaiah goes on to say that he is mighty God. Isaiah does not say that this child is like mighty God. Isaiah says this child is mighty God, which is literally translated, God is a mighty warrior. This means that this baby will be our champion, will be our victor on our behalf. He goes on, probably the most confusing one, says everlasting father. When we hear father and think of God, we probably think of the first person of the Trinity. But, but this term father is used to, to talk about kings and to governing authorities. Those are in charge of people, kind of like a shepherd who cares for his sheep. It's a father that cares for his children. And so we are promised the paternal care of this Savior. And then he says, Prince of Peace. This title not only designates a prince that is peaceful, but a prince that will bring peace. 
Later in Micah 5, it actually says that this one to come, this Jesus, this Christ child, he himself is our peace. At his birth, the angel says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. As Jesus prepares for Gethsemane to be crucified, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Colossians 1.20 says, he, Jesus, has come to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, this prince of peace was the price of peace. He went to the cross to suffer the anguish and the gloom and the torment and the judgment and the destruction of God that we deserve so that we could receive joy and peace and everlasting life. Isaiah continues in verse 7 and says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Every country that has ever existed, every king, every president has ever existed and ever will exist has a shelf life, except for this one. Jesus is a king unlike any other king. His government and his rule will have no turnover. He will not be out in four years. He will not be out in 40 years. He does not stand for election. He will not stand for re-election. His rule is forever, for always, and for everywhere. Isaiah continues, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah was the descendant of David. He came from the line of Jesse, which was David's father. And so they were waiting for that Messiah to come. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever is a long time. I will be a father to him, and he will be my son. This one to come, this promised child, this greater David would come and have a kingdom forever and ever. Isaiah continues saying, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteous. A perfectly righteous king. A perfectly honest politician. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will establish his kingdom. And there will be no corruption, no conspiracy, and no colluding. I didn't even know what colluding was till earlier this year. But there will be none of that. This king is perfect. Can you imagine how glorious it will be to have a righteous, perfect ruler? Now, how long will this glorious kingdom last? We already answered, but he says it again. From this time forth and forevermore, the glorious kingdom that began on that Christmas day with the birth of the king will never again not exist. But it will continue to grow and spread forever and for always as far as the curse of the fall is found. Several years ago, there was a minister in, in Madison at a Mandarin-speaking church. They also speak English there as well, but his name is Iho Tree. And Iho uh, came to, be, to pursue ordination. And the way we do ordination in our denomination is you have a committee of folks that kind of just fire questions like, Give me an outline of Micah or whatever it might be, right? And, and what happened in, 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 uh, in the year 1050 
AD, you know, things like that. So, so they would spit out all these questions. Well, they, they, they see Eho's resume, okay? And there's all these initials after his name because Eho uh, got an MS in aerospace engineering and then he got a PhD in experimental fluid dynamics. And then Eho went to work for President Ronald Reagan in the Star Wars program. And then he got an MA from Denver Seminary and then a THM from Covenant Seminary and later a D-Men. And so when Eho comes to be examined before all of these men, they said, all right, Eho, we only have one rule for this. And he's like, okay, what is that? And they say, you're not allowed to examine us, right? Because he was just so brilliant and so smart. And so, so, so you see like, like these credentials People's resumes gives us confidence that they're able to accomplish what they said they're going to do, right? You're not going for heart surgery with someone who only has their GED. Nothing against GEDs, right? But you want to know their credentials. Can they do what they say they're going to do? What are the credentials of this child to come? What are the names given to them? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Jesus is our good news. Jesus is our king. He is our ruler, and he is our hope for the restoration our hearts so desperately long for. Now, you may be sitting here today. Let me, I'll end with this. You may be sitting here today saying, you know, Pastor Dan, Isaiah 9 is really encouraging, and I've experienced many of those things that you're talking about through Jesus. I've experienced joy in Jesus, the joy of my salvation in Christ. I've experienced peace with God through Christ. Um, but, but, but if you looked in my house or if you turn on the news, you'll see that, that the world is still crazy. Like there's still lots of brokenness and tragedy. I mean, just look anywhere and you'll see the darkness. You'll see the anguish. You'll see the, the distress and the gloom. And so, and so where, where is this promise? Like, like I've seen it in part, but where's, where, where's all of it? Like there's still a lot of brokenness in this world. You know, I began with a secular Christmas carol talking about our longing for the restoration that Christmas brings. But there's another Christmas song I want to point to, a Christian one, one that you're probably familiar with. Isaac Watts, who's often called the father, there's the term, of English hymnody, wrote many hymns in the 17th century, some of them more famous than others. Behold, the glories of the Lamb, when I surveyed the wondrous cross. Probably his most famous hymn is Joy to the World. Uh, in fact, in the 20th century, it was the most published Christian hymn in North America. And what's so interesting about it is that when Isaac Watts wrote this hymn, he did not write it as a Christmas hymn. He had no intention of it being sung for Christmas. He wrote it not about Christ's first coming, but he wrote it about Christ's second coming in anticipation of when Christ will return and complete all of the promises, all of the prophecies in Isaiah 9 that he has begun at his first coming. You know the lyrics, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the earth, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. You know, while Isaac Watts may not have created this hymn to be sung at Christmas, it's a great song to sing at Christmas. Because it reminds us that, yes, Christ has come, and he has become the kingdom of his redemption, the kingdom of joy, the kingdom of peace. 
but he will come again to finish what he has started. Now you may be here and you may be skeptical saying, how can I know that Jesus is going to come again? How do I know that Jesus is going to make all things good again? How do we know that he's going to make everything happy and holy again? How do we know this is going to happen? How can we have confidence in this? I mean, we don't see it. It's been, it's been 2,000 years, like 5,000 people predicted it would come before this. How do we know Christ will come again? Well, the answer is in verse 7. Look with me at verse 7 again. Isaiah says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And here it is, my favorite part of this entire passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The determination of the Lord of the armies of heaven will accomplish this. Friends, this means that the success of God's kingdom is not contingent on your zeal or on my zeal, but on God's zeal. And we can have certain hope that Christ will come again because the zeal of the Lord that brought Christ the first time is the same zeal that is promised to bring Christ the second time. This means, friends, that no matter how much you want the kingdom of God to come now, God wants it more. God wants his kingdom to come forth. God wants to bring peace and victory and joy. Friends, this Christmas, let us not just look back to the first coming of Christ, which we must do, but let us also look forward to the second coming of Christ, when the kingdom of redemption will be completed, where there will be no more death or mourning or pain, where God will wipe away every tear from our eye, and our hearts will be filled with complete joy knowing that the promises given in Isaiah 9 will all come true through the zeal of the Lord who will accomplish it. And in that time, we will gather together and we will sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let's pray. Lord God, we we know in our hearts, we have seen in our lives how you have brought your kingdom, how you have initiated it. God, you have changed us. You have made us new creations, given us new joys, new passions, new loves, new delights, new peace. And yet, Lord, we know that there is still a ways to go. And so we pray, we sing, come, Lord Jesus, make all things new again. Restore your world with your kingdom. Lord, help us in anticipation to look forward to that glorious day when we will be with you face to face for all eternity. Help us to rejoice in the salvation we have and the salvation that is to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.